Coming up on this week's episode of Useless and Hard is my conversation with Anthony Marcellini. Anthony is someone who I've worked with in the day-to-day, and when I started working with him a few months back, I asked if I could interview him about his art because I thought that he had a really fascinating career and a lot of things to say and a lot of ideas. So he invited me very graciously to his house for dinner, uh, and we ate an awesome dinner. And then we talked for quite a long time. This is a substantially edited version of our conversation. And I I think it's really interesting. I think you'll enjoy his sort of history, breadth of knowledge of the art world, and all the different things he's done and seen and tells enthusiastically. I don't know if that was a sentence that made sense. But as it is, here we go. Anthony Marcellini, enjoy. Can we just start with like an overview of your, of your history in art? Because I know you've moved around a lot and you've done quite a few different things. And so just to like kick it off, did you go to art school to begin with? Sure. Um, Okay, so this might take a little while, but I'll try to do the condensed version. Uh, So I went to school in Richmond, Virginia for two years. I was a painting major, then transferred to a school out in Oakland, California, California College of Arts and Crafts. It was called at the time now California College of the Arts. Uh, which I subsequently went to later also for my master's, but we'll get to that. And uh, while I was there, I sort of shifted more towards sculpture, uh, was heavily influenced, I suppose, by the director at the time of uh, uh, a kind of art space that was run through the school that was starting to emerge called uh, what became the Wattis, basically. Um, At the time, it was called the Institute, a guy named Larry Render. Um, and the shows that he was bringing in and realized I was <clears throat> less interested in painting. Well, I, I suppose I should say I did a couple of painting shows there, was offered you know, the opportunity to use a, a gallery, a school gallery, uh, to do some painting shows and ended up doing a couple of shows like with a couple months in between where I would produce the work in about two or three days. Um, pretty much like almost immediately. And then did a whole show of these sort of small painting pieces, sold out the shows, did it again, sold out all the work, which I think really freaked me out and in some way uh, pushed me towards initially sculpture. It freaked you out that you were selling work? Yeah, that it was so easy. Um, I guess for me, the work was very much based on, you know, these sort of at that time, sort of perceptual relationships. I was really interested in color relationships and thinking a lot about um, how audiences experience work and how their the way that they see work uh, shifts or trying to make work that was really hard to look at, basically. And it sold super well. And I just felt like that 
the experience of the audience or their experience of seeing and being part of the work was totally lost to me. Um, I just put the work up and then kind of left and then, you know, people liked it and they bought it or whatever. And I think that because I was sort of missing that experience of understanding what it was like for them to experience artwork, it felt like something was, um, something was, was lost, I suppose. That's, that's interesting because it's like kind of a weird <coughs> inversion of what I at least a little bit feel is happening to me, but I think happens to a lot of people. It's like you you reacted against the market actually supporting you. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of people get, you know, like have their big ideas and want to make their big ideas for a while and then are like, huh, it would be great if someone would buy this. Maybe I should deal with that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I was young. Right. Um, and I don't think I was really thinking about the longevity of, of being an artist and I was really interested in wanting to experiment with things and was being introduced to a lot more more work at the time, like Joseph Boys and um, what else? Like, uh, I guess we started getting really interested in, and when I say we, uh, it's me and another artist named John Hoppen, um, who no longer makes work, at least um, no longer really makes or, or participates in the art world, I suppose. But um, he was a good friend, and we were getting really interested in sort of relational aesthetics because there was this kind of shift to a moment when um, the audience's experience of the work and the work itself were sort of aligned. Um, and so I'm skipping a little bit, but, you know, painting sort of ends, go more towards sculpture, do more sort of installation type work, work that is not as, um, if well, it's physical, but it's not as object oriented. Um, I think the thing with the painting that became a problem for me was that I felt like it was already resolved when the work was on the wall. Like nobody had to question whether it was sort of artwork or not. It was obviously painting. Whether it was good or not was another issue. Um, but for me, I wanted that sort of that questioning to happen more. I guess, and, and I guess that's why people want stuff like, oh, this feels resolved. I can have like it's done. So now I can put it in my house and it'll be done there. Yeah, I don't know why they bought it exactly, but, you know, I suppose it looked like um, contemporary painting or something. And Larry the um, was actually bringing people by. And, and I think finally when um, I made these sculptures out of cinder blocks where I started, <clears throat> I would cut sections of cinder blocks and they're very sort of like Soloit um, influenced, but I would cut these little pieces out of cinder blocks and made like, I don't know, 40 or something of these cinder block pieces that were all cut in different ways. And he brought somebody by and um, and he bought, <clears throat> I think I sold him two cinder blocks for like 75 bucks each or something like that. And at that point I was like, what the fuck? I just sold somebody cinder blocks like for 75 bucks each. This is ridiculous. And I think I quit making uh, physical work after that point. That's so funny. I mean, I just feel like I'd be <clears throat> like, that's fucking awesome. I can't believe these people bought these cinder blocks. Yeah, maybe I mean, that, now it'd be different. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But I think I had this real weird yeah, problem with this. Where, yeah, that's cool. That's understandable. Yeah, where I think people were buying things. I don't know why they bought them, but for me it was a problem. It felt like um, the the sculpture became so immediately a commodity or the painting became so immediately a commodity that the experience of it was kind of... I'm sure there was like, you know, for somebody to buy something and take it home, obviously they'd have to have some kind of great experience with it. But I felt 
like in some way that that was kind of lost in terms of it just being understood as like an art object rather than something that should be questioned. And I think that's where my interest lied, right? So um, John and I start this group kind of in the last um, year of art school called It Can Change, which initially we wanted to do a gallery um, and to uh, run a gallery space basically. And there's a guy named Harold Fletcher that maybe you're familiar with, but um, he was part of a collective called Fletcher and Rubin with another guy named John Rubin, who's uh, very well known for doing uh, Conflict Kitchen out of Pittsburgh. Um, he's great. Uh, they're they're both good guys, but um, they were part of a collective that were you know in some ways sort of curatorial curatorially based, in which they do projects within sort of sites. Ran a gallery out of a um, like a rug store um, that they just sort of asked the guy if they could do shows and he said, fine. And so we were sort of operating in some way on that model. Um, and I think initially knew that we, you know, after discussing the idea of running the gallery that we had no money. Um, so we couldn't afford a space, couldn't really put on work. And so we just, or couldn't really buy work. And so we just decided, you know, let's just, you know, do the gallery wherever there's an audience. I think our first show that we did, we had like six people come and it was in an apartment of mine. And I think after that point was just like, okay, nobody came to this. This is dumb. Let's just like go do, um, go do shows where there's already like audiences. So I think the first project we did was actually in a mall where we had an artist um, make work on top of these sort of wooden, um, wooden structures that were on casters so it was a painter who did these really weird paintings with stuffed animals where there'd be like a guy named pepe mar where there'd be like a stuffed animal that was like a red and white polka dotted monkey or something like that and he'd take red and white paint and kind of like you know squish the monkey into the red and white paint and then go across the canvas with it and just drag it across the canvas so you'd get these Was he performing right. that in the mall or the he just brought the paintings No, he just bring the paintings okay. and kind of like on top of these um weird sort of stretchers on casters and we would just sort of push them around and then people would sort of stop us and ask what was going on and that was like the first And I mean and eventually show. you just get kicked out of the mall. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and so that was sort of the initial part of it can change. And I graduated, John graduated. And uh, we ran it can change for about uh, five years and were, did various shows, like actually became pretty, um, pretty successful with it. We're invited to initially New York to do a project at this gallery called Apex Art which was called Food, um, or rather the show was was called Shadow Cabinets. It was all about um, artists who are doing work that in some ways um, operating like a shadow cabinet in the government, which is like a, this idea, I think, in the British Parliament where they would set up like a, a cabinet that would be um, a shadowing in some ways the existing cabinet. So if the existing cabinet like fell, the shadow cabinet would be, you know, could be instituted, could be placed in. So it was people that, it was a show curated by Ted Purvis, I should say. And it was this idea that there were all these artists basically working within sort of gift economies or service economies, making work that was fulfilling um, a kind of a need that was missing within society in general. Uh, I mean, can you can you elaborate on that need? 
Um, yeah, okay. So there was like a lot of people who were doing things with uh, gardening, for example, and um, or like dealing with food or um, <clears throat> or dealing with sort of housing issues and things like this or uh, bringing music within, uh, bringing sort of music or there was this group called Kambalache Collective that was doing this sort of mobile DJ lab where they're teaching people how to DJ and then also uh, DJing music sort of out of a van just within sort of um, sort of semi-public spaces, usually within um, in the back of uh, low-income housing um, areas and things like that. So um, our project was this project called Food, where we um, tried to basically sort of restage this restaurant that Gordon Mata Clark and Carolyn Gooden, Tina Gerard, and a ton of other people had ran in um, New York in the 70s in Soho uh, that was like ran for about two years. And um, it was a very artist-centered place uh, where people in the neighborhood, all these artists moved to Soho and uh, New York was more or less bankrupt and all the factories had kind of left Soho, leaving all these, you know, vacant warehouses and whatnot. Artists moved there, but there wasn't a whole lot of restaurants or places for people to eat. So they started this restaurant, which was also sort of an art space. They did performances and things like that. So we decided to sort of restage it um, where it used to be, which was now a fat farm clothing store, Russell Simmons uh, kind of fashion line. So we spelled it P-H-O-O-D, food, uh, to kind of make it contemporary and would drive a truck up and park it um, right in front of where the restaurant used to be and then would serve free food out of there um, and then give away all these artworks that were sort of performance pieces that one could do on their own um, that artists would give us. We did a, like an open call, invited all these artists to, to make work. So, Can you just give me like a little background on the... When was the Mata Clark piece and then your piece mm. was in like the early 2000s, late 90s? Yeah, yeah. So um, Food Restaurant ran, I think, from 70 to 72. or That might be 69 to 71. I'm sorry if I'm off on this. I'm pretty sure it's 69 to 71. And then we, the food project that we did was in, um, was that 2002, I think, um, where we had done that. And so, yeah. And, you know, so people would, we would sort of have to like bark at people on the street to get them to come over and then give them free sort of vegan food, basically, uh, which we made just so that anyone could eat it. Um, and uh, then people would sort of be given artworks if they wanted them and they could go around and sort of do these uh, kind of journeys that artists had sort of built for the project. I mean, and how long were you guys running that? We did that for about five days. And then back in the gallery space, there was documentation placed inside of like an organ box. So we got really interested in Wilhelm Reich, this sort of crazy, uh, I shouldn't say crazy, a um, unusual student of Freud's who got really, in, I think, influenced also by Jung and got really interested in this idea of like orgon, which was meant to be a sort of energy, this kind of life force that he felt like was flowing through the universe and you could harness it. And it was very much connected to orgasm. And the orgasm was the, basically the sort of uh, being able to harness all of these, this organ energy and eventually it would sort of erupt, right? Um, and uh, he made these boxes that were these things 
which were basically boxes where you would have this combination of, I think, aluminum, um, felt or cotton and wood. And these three elements together were meant to basically really harness the organ energy. So, um, we built a sort of box like this out of found materials, um, and a lot of beer cans basically, um, for your aluminum layer. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, um, and we built this in the space and then inside it put all these photographs from the, um, from the project, from the food project that was, you know, how it was performed for those days. So that was one of these things. And then, um, Another sort of less complicated project was done in Germany uh, called the Clothing Project, where we uh, basically asked artists to make anything that could be worn on the body, any artwork that could be worn on the body. And uh, we gave it out to people for free on the streets and set up like a flea market type situation. And that was in Castle, Germany, in I think 2003, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it was right after the U.S. had started to bomb Iraq. Um, and so that project, which, like many of the It Can Change projects, actually turned out really being about like questioning what art is and questioning audience members, like general public, basically, uh, around what art is. And often using something like clothing or food, some sort of gift um, that was given away as a way to sort of spark conversation. Um but it was pretty simple. We'd set up like a, a kind of flea market type thing on the street and would kind of bark at people and, um, and really poor German and ask them if they'd, you know, sort of like a piece of clothing uh, that an artist made. I think Kunstkleider umsonst or something, which is like, uh, I'm sorry all of, if there's German listeners. Um, artist clothes, no cost, right? Um, and would... Uh, yeah, give it to somebody and ask that they wear it. Inside was a label uh, that was sewn into the garment that explained that it was part of this project. And we asked people to send us photographs and themselves wearing the project that I think happened once. Um, but, you know, really it was just a way to get like art out, right? And in around. Um, yeah. And then I think back in the gallery, uh, we would take the same or we sort of duplicated these sort of blankets that we put on the street um, that we get the, gave the clothes off, off of. And we would take the clothes from those blankets and put them on the blankets that were outside and sell them, or wouldn't sell them, give them away for free. And back in the gallery space, we put photographs of the people that you know were photographed wearing that, that piece of clothing. So, All right, so that's early 2000s in Germany. Yeah. So we're getting somewhere, you're in your 20s, making art in Europe. Right. So then um, eventually there's sort of a crisis and it can change, starts to kind of fall apart. Um, as crisis. I think a lot of, well, I, I wouldn't say like a specific like crisis. A, your lives being like, oh, wait, our lives. And also like, uh, do we, can we deal with each other this much? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. It was sort of that. And I think uh, the more sort of notoriety we got, the more that um, it can change started to sort of fall apart. Yeah, that. I feel like that's a thing that happens where it's like the different sides. It's not just all fun and games anymore. And then, and then the people's real personalities come out. Yeah. It became kind of like a job. Um, and I think we had done it as sort of an irreverent practice for a long period of time. And, you know, a lot of the influences for it can change had to do with us being trying to kind of like subvert 
um, markets, for example, or certain conventions about how people understood art. So I'll give you one other example of a project that we did, which was this pinata party that was actually done after I moved to New York, but um, where we asked artists to make you know some sort of artwork that could be hung from the ceiling and was filled with something, basically. And uh, we hung like 50 artworks from the ceiling of a gallery in New York City. And they were all filled with different things and they were all hung in ropes. And uh, the show was up for like two weeks and we had the opening in the middle of the show. So the first half of the show, you could see these objects sort of hanging all around the gallery space. And then in the middle of the show was the opening. And then one by one, people were asked to come up. And they were blindfolded and given a sort of baseball bat and basically swung at um, uh, different kinds of sculptures that were on strings, right, or ropes. And um, I think it was really influenced by, you know, just wanting to be able to go into a gallery, very juvenile sentiment here, but uh, with like a, a bat and destroy a sculpture right or to have this sort of like very kind of violent sort of aggressive act happen within a space that was seen as one of sort of slow contemplation typically or um quite clean and quite white right so what was the most interesting thing that came out of a sculpture so well there was a sculpture that ended the night which was filled with pudding uh that had been sitting in the space it was, you know, the show was actually during the summer as well, right. baking in the gallery for an entire week. And that was kind of interesting. But anyway, so um, that was at a gallery called Gavin Brown's Enterprise, which is a quite well-known gallery now. And it was sort of near the tail end of when the project was starting to kind of, it can change, was starting to, to fall apart. And I had moved to New York kind of knowing that it can change was falling apart. And thinking that, you know, I was living in the Bay Area prior to this um, for about, I don't know, maybe four or five years and moved to New York thinking that, you know, the, the Bay Area art scene at the time was not super global in terms of its scope. Um, I don't think that people there were always super aware of the kind of international art world, um, this art world that we were sort of more interested in. And... Um, but still like quite an expensive city. And, you know, so I just sort of felt like I wanted to move to, um, to like an art center. It was either that or just give up making art. Um, and so I sort of decided, um, tried to figure out what to do. And fortunately I met this, uh, this woman who was living in New York, um, Laura Mott, who eventually became my wife, who, um, was like a big draw to also come to New York. Right. And decided, okay, like I'm just gonna move to New York and try to sort of engage with the uh, directly with the art world, because um, yeah, like I said, it was this sort of point of of kind of conflict. Does one uh, engage directly or does one just leave? And that was kind of the point, or the point we were at with it can change was like, do we take this further and uh, make it serious and engage really more directly? Um, with the kind of international art world and make this like a, a serious practice, which it never was sort of meant to be. Um, or do we just drop it entirely? And I think I kind of knew it can change was falling apart. Part of me thought like, well, maybe I can continue it on and do it as my own practice. Um, but it was something that was very much developed with John and I, so it felt a little weird to do that. But 
Anyway, so I moved to New York. Uh, we do and it can change a couple of can change shows there actually, and uh, eventually get hired after working um, building crates and uh, doing install work at a number of different galleries and museums. Do a little bit of install work at a gallery called Art in General in Soho, um, right south of um, of Canal, actually. So I think it's right sort of more of the Tribeca, uh, in between Tribeca and Soho. And uh, it's a nonprofit gallery and doing kind of interesting work at the time, a lot of group shows, that kind of thing. Um, but I get hired as a, a sort of program assistant was the initial title and eventually became curatorial assistant and worked with a curator there named Sofia Hernandez Chanqui who um, I think hired me initially because she was really interested in uh, the Can Change project and its connection to sort of socially engaged practice or relational aesthetics or participatory art, right? Um, and that I was already like working with audiences, but also as somebody who, you know, knew how to build stuff, could, you know, build out things, understood uh, to some degree, how to, to deal with um, shows, right? If there were shows that came up, I could I could manage how to um, how to have them installed, and that was my main sort of duties. Um, but was really trained as like a curator for about three years by um, by Sophia, and I think you know it can change. As I said, also had a kind of curatorial background. I mean, it w- was really based on this idea of like running a gallery and kind of like a nonprofit gallery. We did open calls, and we would create you know, invite people to make work for a very specific situation, um, dealing with a very, you know, specific theme typically. So had this kind of gallery model, right. Or curatorial model. Um, anyway, so I worked there for about three years and, you know, was started writing a lot more, um, in that job. And, um, which became, I think fairly important later and especially important in my practice now, uh, didn't really make work, for those sort of three, four years that I was there, um, mainly just worked as a, as a curator with Sophia, um, started curating projects at it can change, or sorry, at art in general and, um, would, you know, be writing press releases, uh, you know, corresponding with artists and specifically working heavily to help artists produce projects. Um, which is one of the things that Sophia instituted there was this new commissions program where she invited, um, both invited and did open calls to artists to sort of submit proposals for, um, for new works to produce. And she wanted this uh, nonprofit, and this is um, just so we're, you're clear on sort of time periods, this is 2004 to 2007 that I'm working there. And at the time, most of the nonprofits in um, New York were just doing sort of like group shows with artists or sometimes single person exhibitions with some sort of sense that if you gave artists exposure, galleries might pick them up, right? And Sophia really argued for the fact that like, no, there was like Art Angel in, um, in England and other sort of types of places where they're actually working very heavily with artists to help them um, produce like a new quite grand work rather than just, um, you know, giving them some kind of like exposure within their gallery space. And this would allow artists who maybe were um, 
you know, successful artists to do something that was different or didn't fit their sort of normal, um, normal mode of production or the type of work that sold well through the gallery. So they could do something different. Um, or artists who were sort of emerging or up and coming or, or less well known, um, this would give them a chance to produce something at like a fairly large scale. So um, it was very important to her that the the work had a production budget and that the artist got a stipend as well to, to produce this work. And we did pretty massive projects, like work with this artist named Sharon Hayes um, to help her do this project called In the Near Future, where she would uh, take these protest signs that were historically um, recognizable, sort of important protest signs, and would uh, stand in a certain location with this pro protest sign. And the location would have no real relationship to the the initial location where the protest sign was first used. So uh, I'm a man, for example, from the um, from Martin Luther King's march. She had a, a sign that was holding that sign that was actually done underneath um, um, in Times Square. So uh, you see this sort of like ticker tape about, you know, Bloomberg and um, I don't know, like stocks and things like this above her. Um, so we helped sort of stage that and produce that. And that became like a, um, a sort of multi-slide projection piece of all these different photographs of her um, in different sites and people sort of talking to her about this. And so that was like a piece we produced. Um, you know, worked with tons of people. Uh, there was like a huge project with this group called um, the E-Team called the International Airport Montello, where the E-Team had bought this property off of, I think, eBay in uh, Nevada and realized after they went out there that this property had a, or nearby it was a, um, was a landing strip that was sort of semi-abandoned, kind of unclear what it was being used for, and a small town called Montello that was a town of, like, I think, like 60 people, like super small, like very much kind of off the grid, kind of almost Wild West. And so they wanted to produce this project where they would um, basically create an airport um, in the middle of nowhere in Nevada, which very much became this project about creating the idea of an airport rather than an actual physical airport, which would cost millions of dollars. Um, so sort of staging this airport of sort of like a, um, waiting for a kind of Godot type piece where we're actually wake, waiting for an airplane that would never actually arrive. And we, um, actually chartered a flight to land nearby, uh, with a bunch of collectors who were then sort of taken on a shuttle bus to the international airport Montello to catch their sort of connecting flight, which never arrived. And while they're there, all these people in the town ended up being sort of, um, actors or, um, you could say they were hired by the, the airport. So there was people that were like the baggage, uh, baggage claim. Um, it was kind of an amazing project, but I just wanted to say, so through those projects and seeing what was possible, uh, it gave me a lot of sort of impetus to, um, go back and go back to school basically and realize that, okay, maybe I could, uh, become an artist again. Um, there's all these sort of amazing projects that, uh, I've been a part of that artists have done and really opened up my ideas about what could be, could be produced, what one could do. Um, in addition, I think because of working at a nonprofit, that was supposed to be a, a space that was, you know, devoid of the market, like separated from the market. I realized like, 
Oh yeah, of course. Like uh, it's totally connected to the market. All of the people who sit on the, not all the people, but a lot of people who sit on the board had a connection to the contemporary art market. So there were gallerists who, um, who, you know, sell work for profit galleries. Gallerists would actually support art in general work. Um, collectors who supported the work uh, at art in general as well. People who, you know, deal within the art market. And so I think, you know, it can change being this sort of really anti-market kind of project. I kind of realized through working at art in general that like, okay, these two things don't have to be uh, totally devoid of each other or one can't um, be sort of clean from the sort of commodification of, of artwork or another way to look at it, which would be maybe the slightly more intelligent way to understand it would be that like, you know, all of these systems are totally interchanged. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That they're intertwined and that like no system is perfect and you know, you're going to be a part of imperfect systems no matter what you do in your life. Yeah. And I think as I get older now, it's sort of like, you know, you figure out the way to make your work the best way you can and be sort of ethically good in, in what you're producing. And, you know, if you sell work that, um, the sale of that work may go towards the production of other work that is non-saleable. I mean, this whole sort of obsession with sale, selling was, I think at the time, right. very important to me and now is less important. But. Yeah, yeah, but I do, I mean, the, I've, the way I've guessed, well, the way I've felt about, like, I don't really sell work or make saleable work, but the reason I would is so I could make more work. I mean, yeah. That's the the bottom line is like if if you can make a living doing it, then yeah. you can do more of it. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yeah. So, so, you know, so you deal with the market. Right. I mean, I think when I was young with the sort of painting shows and whatnot, I felt like somehow I was sort of selling out. Right. I think. I was also like a punk kid. I grew up like a punk hardcore kid. And I really? think that yeah. yeah. When, and I think that influence shows. actually really was heavily um huh. heavily sort of bearing upon my uh, my experiences within the sort of young experiences within the art world. Um, okay, so we're, we're going to get there to, to now. Cool. It's going to yeah, take yeah, a little while. It. But I told you it would take Interesting a while. Interesting things on the way. Um, okay, so boring. leave art in general. I go to grad school. Um, I decide to go to this grad school that is the California College of the Arts, um, which is the same school I went to for undergrad, but has just sort of launched this new program um, called the Social pra Practices Concentration. So this was like late 2000s? This is 2007. Um, I started there, right? So I left art in general directly and went um, to CCA. And um, did this program for two years that was, I think, really interesting, but a brand new program so there were a lot of kinks um you know we didn't really have a space we weren't really supposed to be making objects and work which having gone through these sort of life experiences um which i didn't realize going into it i initially chose it because i thought like um i wasn't quite sure what i wanted to do i wanted to go back to art school because because my uh, girlfriend, Laura Mott, was a curator. And so I sort of felt like I didn't want to be a curator kind of because um, I'd she had she'd gone to Bard and had had some sort of difficult experiences in many ways doing uh, somewhat radical curatorial projects. And I felt like I didn't want to be... Um, 
I didn't want to have that kind of structure or feel like I needed to be an art historian at the time, right? Um, to to make work, but rather do things that were somewhere in between kind of curatorial work and um, in art practice. And so I decided, okay, well, there's this social practice, this program, and talked to them a lot about this. And they said, like, yeah, well, you can do whatever you want. I mean, it's just about this program is about uh, sort of understanding art as a kind of social practice, one that engages with people um, directly. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. Um, but I think initially within the program, it became much more sort of um, anti-object, um, anti-market, which... Uh, which was really funny given the sort of prior experiences, or at least that's how I saw it. Maybe it was just me sort of dealing with my demons or whatever. Um, but com- somehow through that, I think um, I got more interested in the relationship between um, people and objects, sort of like the social relationships that objects or sites may have, um, which a lot of my work started sort of shifting towards after that that period of time. So I did a show um, while I was there that was uh, all about this group called, um, this was like my thesis project, called the San Francisco uh, Meme Troupe or Mime Troupe, which was a kind of radical theater group within uh, San Francisco. You may have seen this on the website, although it's quite low um, uh, on the page there. but. This radical theater group that in the 60s was going out and doing um, very political theatrical performances within public space. And uh, they would do these performances um, in order to sort of talk about problems that were going on within the city and eventually started having... um, having some problems with the, uh, with the park service um, who w- would be restricting them from actually performing. So they did this very, uh, this performance that for me was very interesting where they decided to um, host a performance in the park uh, of a sort of political play when the park said that they needed to get a permit uh, to perform, but they wouldn't actually, the parks wouldn't actually give them permits because they didn't want them to perform this political play. So they promoted it and decided to do it anyway. Um, and then once they got to the park and started setting up their stage, uh, the cops came over and said like, you can't keep building your stage. If you build your stage, we're going to arrest you because you don't have permits. And they said, look, look, we want to be arrested. We, um, you know, it's important for us that we be arrested because we want this to be a, um, a free speech issue. Um, we want to take it to the courts, um, but we don't want you to arrest us for building the stage. So what we're going to do is we're going to perform. And when we start to perform and we'll make it very clear when we're going to start to perform, we want you to come in and arrest us. And so they end up staging this. The like, cops were into it. They were yeah, like, exactly. sure, They're like, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah okay, we'll, we'll wait, do that. We'll wait yeah. half an hour to arrest you guys. That sounds fun. And so the cops are sort of hanging out while they're sort of gathering people and telling people what's going to go on. And um, and then they do the main guy, this guy named um, Ronald, Ronnie, uh, uh, Ronald Davis, starts to do sort of, starts to introduce the performance and says something like, uh, and with very large gestures so that the cops can see them, um, says like, today for our performance, we present for your enjoyment, ladies and gentlemen, an arrest. And then the cops come in and arrest him. 
and the crowd kind of goes crazy um and the whole leveling between who are the actors and who are the audience members and who are the authority figures gets totally like thrown off um and people start like knocking hats off cops and uh things like them actual actual cops because they think the cops are fake yeah or they're part of the performance right because they are at that point right right um and so is the audience and uh so for me it was a very interesting moment and you know some people get arrested and they take it to the courts and i think they lose actually but but for me this kind of uh this act this sort of event this idea of kind of leveling everything was i think very important and how this sort of gesture uh this movement this action of um making very clear what was going to happen that was a part of the sort of play it was a part of something uh, that the arrest itself could be um, could become something that was both controlled and sort of aestheticized in a way uh, became for me sort of very interesting and was this relationship between sort of um, kind of a site, uh, you know, people or a social situation and a very aesthetic sort of at, in that instance movements or uh, uh, or gestures were all kind of like part of the work. So anyway, that became kind of uh, something that sort of spurred me towards thinking about the relationship between sort of language um, or uh, many way narrative and storytelling and how storytelling uh, can very much or in different situations kind of prescribe or change a relationship of either a site or an object um, so the object sort of shifts after there's the story that's kind of um, uh, placed upon it or written through it. Um, and in that situation, the object is, you know, the park um, as the sort of space. And, and this event itself, is you can, be under, you can understand, is kind of like the object. Um, I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead there, but... No, I mean, that that stuff makes sense with the work of yours that I've seen from the mm. last four or five years. Yeah. So, I mean, actually, it all makes sense with that. That, that is to say, some of those tendencies mm. have been there throughout. And I think, but I think it came through kind of the social practices program to yeah. get there. And, yeah. Yeah, but just, I mean, even just the, wow, which piece was it? But one of the ones you described just at the beginning of this conversation still had like this kind of strong relationship to kind of art. I mean, I think your interest in what art is mm-hmm. and how how art relates to itself as art, which is <laughs> has been there from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and is still somewhat like fairly central to what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think for me what what was interesting I think early on and still is interesting is Oftentimes when something becomes understood as art, and I think if you understand this this meme troupe performance, that was like understood as it was uh, determined that it was an artwork, right? It was a performance. I mean, maybe it's not the same quite as an artwork, but in general sense, like it's a theatrical performance. It's like a work of art, right? Um, and the social situation becomes understood as a work of art. And when that happens, I think it adds a level of total uncertainty, which I find very interesting. So I don't like it when the artwork is understood as complete. So, and that was the problem with maybe the paintings to some degree. 
um, is when I don't like it when people feel like that they know what it is. Yeah. But rather actually when um, when it's understood as art, but that kind of name, that sort of taxonomy, that um, that definition actually unseats it and unsettles the thing from what you normally think it it is or what you think that sort of social relation might normally be. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think that there's like people might say, oh, like art, you know, art is never art without the viewer. But it's also like, yeah, but some art is kind of art without the viewer. I mean, I think, you know, to that, uh, when I do think about artwork, I often think about the work itself, the situation, or rather the site that it might be placed within, the situation in which one might encounter it, and the audience, the people who may be encountering it. For me, those are all, like, all aspects of the work. Right. So, um, or, you know, it could be also a dog who's encountering it or something like that. I mean, or a plant or whatever. I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, a person who encounters the work, but I think there has to be another kind of actor, another uh, element that uh, the work is communicating with. Uh, So... I mean the communication. <laughs> sorry, the communication of your work with to a dog and a plant it would be like enough to activate the work for you. Yeah, I think so. Okay, you're yeah. just like, oh, there's just a bunch of dogs running around this in this piece. Yeah, that would be kind of great. <laughs> I should work on that. There was a great uh, artist we worked with at Art in General named Piotr Lutinsky, who is like a, a Polish uh, painter sculptor. All of the work that he made was work that was made for animals made all of these paintings for horses and would sort of hang them in stalls for horses. I mean, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> Sounds great. But, it but, actually, but he'd then take pictures of the horses in the stalls with the yeah, art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and then he would show that art to the humans. I think so. And then also would oftentimes when he would show the work in galleries, there would always be sort of animals that were present. Huh. So I, I guess that does bring me to like one of the few questions that I wrote down, <laughs> which was like how do you see the audience's relationship to your work in that i think there is there is an element of a lot of the the work that you've described and also the work that you've seen where there's going to be a large part of the public that's like what the fuck is this yeah and and sort of how do you how do you relate to that feeling or the kind of un the uneducated or uninterested public well i don't think you can necessarily change the the uninterested public, I mean, they're just gone. But uh, if they're not interested, they're, they're you know, they're not going to stay. Um, but I think, what the fuck is this is a pretty good response. I think hopefully that means that somebody's curious enough to um, to look further. And I'd love people to come into things and say, like, you know, what the fuck is this? What What's going right. on here? Is, that, is um, it enough of what the fuck is this and then I'm going to try to figure this out? Or is it what the fuck is this? I'm going to go that way. Yeah, I mean, if that's the maybe that's, the, that's the, people. the uninterested viewer. I mean, I don't think you can necessarily uh, change everyone's relationship, but I do try to, in my works, usually do something that um, kind of still like within the it can change projects is kind of like a barker, and I mean a barker by somebody who like sort of stands on the street corner and says like hot dogs, hot dogs over here, or like fifty percent off sale or whatever, so that there's some aspect of the work that kind of. I hope draws people in in that sense, and you know maybe it's not always successful, but something that is a little bit that is both 
drawing people in and also pushing them away. Um, and I think both, both those things are kind of important. And I actually think that the more you push people away, the more that, uh, oftentimes with, um, especially with artwork that they tend to want to, you know, see more and, you know, there's a desire is extremely important, I think within, uh, within people. So for example, there was a show that I did at the, this Gothenburg Kunsthall, um, a number of years ago. I think that was in uh, 2000 and uh, no, what was that 2013? I believe. The yeah, I was invited to do the show at the Gothenburg Kunsthalle that was engaging with the history of the um, of the museum, and I did a lot of different sort of sculptural pieces that were relating to um, to kind of traces, things that were left behind from shows. And the show was sort of based on this idea of it being kind of like a crime scene. So it was titled a uh, perfect crime, um, never leaves a trace, um, uh, or always leaves a trace. Jesus, I can't remember my own titles. Um, and within that show, within sort of the, the sculptural pieces and works around the wall and some photography works was a show that I curated within, uh, a sort of gallery space that was actually bricked off. And all of the work in that show was work of sort of historically important sort of Gothenburg, Swedish uh, based artists, right? Um, work that I thought people would actually really want to see. Placed it in this gallery space, hung the whole show, and then uh, bricked up the walls of the gallery uh, with some small holes drilled into the walls so that people could actually really see that there were things in there. Um, and in some ways were were drawn to sort of see more. Plus there was a, a map of all of the work in the show and all of the work within that specific show was listed within the map and titled and everything, but uh, they weren't allowed access, right? And I felt like that gesture in itself was really intended to actually have people want to, um, you know, both learn more about their own situation, um, but also to play with the problem within Gothenburg that I had experienced of people constantly telling me that um, there are no really great artists here or there was no real art scene in Gothenburg, which was, of course, totally not the case. Um, but I think that that, that aspect, uh, kind of pushing people away, actually really created a lot more desire from people to learn more. And I do try to, in some ways, have some sort of aspect um, like that within a show, which is either either pushing people away or something that is maybe slightly aggressive uh, which I hope sort of draws people in more, you know, you sort of push at somebody and they will just push back. Um, and I want a little bit of that pushback. I hope that kind of yeah. answers what you're asking, but yeah, that, that makes sense. A couple of your recent works felt like it also, I mean, very much institutional critique mm. and kind of in line with like the life of a work of art. Sure. 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 Sort of, you know, again, you know, back to the same idea of like, what is art's place in the world mm. and how does it live its life and what does that mean? Mm. And what is the perfect crime in question? Yeah. I mean, I think the fact is that I, I, I thought about the, um, you know, there's certainly an archive. It was actually pretty poorly, um, uh, poorly archived archive at the, at the museum. But um, the perfect crime is kind of the fact that you, you would have a show tons of labor would be put into an exhibition that is maybe up from anywhere from one month to, you know, three months or whatever. Um, and then when it's gone, it's kind of just gone. It just disappears. Right. 
um, there's some aspects of it. There's photographs uh, sometimes. Uh, there's sometimes written documentation. Um, but that, for the most part, the sort of general audience is oftentimes, at least within the, the Gothenburg, by, uh, Gothenburg Kunsthalle, and, you know, this is dealt with differently at different museums, but the, the general audience is often sort of excluded from um, those, anything but just a memory of that aspect. And so in some ways I thought about that as a kind of like, it's like a crime scene, um, the, the museum. It's a space where there's been all of these different events, when there's been all these sort of bodies that have been on the walls or it, taking up space within the, the gallery space or performances that have happened. And when they're gone, um, they're, you know, they're gone. There's some small things that exist that are remnants of what occurred there. But for the most part, you know, the photograph never really uh, can ever give a full experience of the, of the show itself, or certainly the performance documentation of other types like video or whatever. What the value of, of kind of direct dealings with art history is to you. I, I think it probably it's, it's important, but I think generally it's also, you know, and it kind of goes back to like, why am I dealing with, with art and art history? I mean, sometimes I'll sort of segue into literature, but I don't think that there's any project that I've done that has dealt directly with, um, with literature or fiction foremost. Usually it will um, deal with art, but it's always about kind of like stories around artworks or oftentimes how people see certain artworks. Um, so I think the, you know, the Richard Serra piece was, um, which is called, you know, breathe in, breathe in and out through the object, um, which was a performance that was done, you know, with um, where I read this sort of text that was meant as sort of like a hypnotic kind of meditation uh, for people where I had them um, imagine uh, this like a space that this Richard Serra's piece, this tilted arc was installed in um, and eventually removed and sort of told this story really around this, this object. And they were given sort of um, small pieces of steel to hold on to, uh, rusted steel to hold on to while they're sort of breathing and thinking about this sort of story that I was telling. And for me, you know, I think why I was interested in the story was it was the story about this artwork that was both installed and then removed and has been like an artwork that was talked about a lot within the social practices program, a lot within any sort of discussion around sort of public art um, or the failures really of public art because it was, um, it you know, the sculpture was seen as actually uh, as ugly by a lot of people or seen as like a sort of scar within the landscape of this lobby of this office building where it was installed. Um, and people had these very violent reactions to it. Um, I don't necessarily think it was a failed piece, um, but I but I do think that it's this, it is kind of a trauma, um, which is what really drew me to it, is this trauma about public art. Like uh, this is like a work that you know an artist spent all this time on to develop that you know all this money was put into by the city um to support it it was supporting sort of a very well-known contemporary artist and um and a piece that was super minimal 
and um you know verging on sort of conceptual you could say and um in the end it was removed because people really hated it right um and so it's like there's this great trauma around this around this work and i think that's what really really drew me to it and i was really interested in that story of that trauma and how one could sort of use that and kind of combine it with uh a type of exercise that is meant to sort of relieve uh people of stress and trauma in order to sort of really meditate on this on this work on this piece um and kind of find peace in some way with um our solace in some way with this uh um with this event and so i think i'm trying to get at your question which is that for me what's i think most important is are the stories that are around these um around these artworks um and or potentially a way to kind of create a narrative so within the the gothenburg uh kunsthall piece um of um which is was titled actually new new reality that um uh, that sort of curatorial project that was um, exhibition that was bricked up, you know, I was very much like pulling from, you know, the cask of Amontillado or whatever, Poe, um, you know, this this story of like, you know, you use this very kind of literary gesture of like bricking up a wall, sealing in um, uh, this artwork uh, in some ways, putting it w- within a tomb um, and also keeping people out of it, right? Um, and I, I felt like that was actually in some ways like a kind of literary gesture, almost like a gesture of like horror or whatever to do the same, quite violent, I think in a way, although slow, but was the, was the perform, was the breaking it up a performance in itself? No, it was done before. Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. The, in coming back to the breathe in, breathe out piece, uh-huh. um, do you know, I mean, how did the audience react and how much of the audience already knew the story and you know do you, i mean do you know any of that how large just anything about the audience and their reaction to it yeah that's a good question um so there's various different reactions um at the end of the the piece the steel objects are taken out of people's hands um and i sort of after that tell them uh just to keep breathing um and keep thinking and just keep breathing slowly and i walk away um and i totally leave and so i'm not there to actually talk to anyone um and i don't tell them when it's over either so people can decide to sit there for as long as they want so for me in many ways it was about like you know uh kind of leaving the project or how the project is sort of left that it was just kind of removed and everyone just had to deal with it um that being said, so I didn't really talk to people directly about their experiences of it, but afterwards, so I did it twice. Afterwards, the first piece I did in, or first time I did it in uh, Austria, there was one guy who was like going crazy trying to find the piece of steel that was taken out of his hands. And it really bothered him that he had lost it, that he had actually really developed this like felt like he had developed this relationship with it and really wanted it. Um, I think I eventually gave him something, but, um, <laughs> you did give it to him. You yeah, didn't, yeah. You didn't take it away like the sculpture. Well, I took it away, but, um, but he w- w- 
you know, kept wanting and was so adamant about it that I was just like, okay, yeah. Take it. <laughs> yeah Cause yeah. I just thought like after the show, you're like, I, I guess the show's over. You can have the piece. I don't really care. Yeah, kind of. And I just thought, okay, well, this will be a story. Right. Um, this will be something he talks about, or maybe he doesn't, maybe it got thrown out. Who knows? But, um, so there's that, there were some people that, um, really couldn't stand the piece because they had, they felt like it was manipulative to, uh, put them into a sort of experience of like meditation or, or hypnosis and really couldn't deal with, with that aspect of it, even though that was sort of advertised. So that was one aspect that was like not so great. Um, but some people sat around for a long time afterwards and talked with each other about like the piece of steel that they had or what they were imagining. And I think the responses I got from a lot of people were that, and this is, you know, quite a while afterwards, so not immediate, but were that they, a lot of them talked about 9-11 and cause I never mentioned the Sarah piece specifically i talk about this um that there's this object it's like a large piece of steel within um within a uh like a courtyard um or like a large open space basically that you find yourself in um so everything is left quite vague because i also didn't want it to be like directly um for people to think like, oh, it's the Sarah work. Cause then I just thought they'd just think about the Sarah problem the whole time and not about their experience of being within this, um, trying to kind of commune, I guess, with this fictional, uh, large steel object in their head and the small steel object in their hands. Right. So a lot of people, I guess, cause of the language and how things were talked about and, uh, the relationship between the sort of steel object and the people that are mentioned within the story, um, I think people thought a lot about 9-11 for some reason uh, about that. And so I think, again, you know, obviously that's a trauma. And I think so people's different experiences with kind of trauma, I think, end up kind of filtering through the project in a way or their experience of it. Um, but I think it's also something that you can experience without having any knowledge of. Richard yeah, no, Sarah's it's piece. actually it's nice to know that you didn't say anything about yeah, Richard yeah. Sarah piece in the in the narrative because I think <clears throat> in so many ways that that's like significant to your conceptualization of the piece, but probably not to anyone's experience of it, and that makes a big difference. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and I think that's important too in terms of art history is that a lot of these things. For me, I you know again, I'll probably mention my mother, but um, being a science educator. Um, I think that she, because she dealt with lots of different levels of both education <clears throat> as well as age and cultural background and, and whatnot, is that she tried to make things at a certain level where uh, many different people could engage with them regardless of um, what they knew about the subject or... Um, yeah. So no, yeah, I, I think I try to do that with most of the work. I th I think that's that makes sense. I mean, I think that there you're you're always kind of forced to find a way to structure the work for yourself. Yeah. And find some point from which to make decisions. Yeah. And so, you know, I, and I, an art historical reference is a very useful place for, from which to make decisions sometimes. Yeah. Um whether or not it influences the appearance of the piece exactly or how the audience experiences it is fairly irrelevant yeah 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 i hear that 
Yeah, I think it's a starting point oftentimes. Right. Yeah. And just because it'll be something that intrigues me for whatever reason. Well, yeah, you want to wrap up by just saying a little bit about the the <clears throat> the show you have coming up at Wasserman. We talked a little bit about the piece the show at the Samanda Sousa mm-hmm. and just come kind of your current projects. Yeah, so let me um I guess I'll talk a little bit more about the Simone show just so it's clear. But um, so the Simone show is dealing with a lot of different works that are engaging with the history of Detroit um, because I felt like after being here for two years, um, I wanted to try to engage with it regardless of how difficult it may be um, to deal with its history. Uh, And in some ways is being dealt with in similar ways as um, as the Sarah piece in that I'm interested in uh, the, the, I think the form of it will not be the same, but um, but I'm interested in uh, the history of the city, but then in some ways kind of taking out the specifics that may um, be so specific that there's a very, cert- there's a certain type of reading that people will have because of their own experiences with it. In some ways trying to withdraw that and just dealing with the, the moments of sort of breakdown, collapse, transition, change that happened within the city um, and manifesting those in various, various ways. Um, and then, uh, so, <clears throat> so like, for example, there's a number of pieces they're dealing with bricks um, as these objects that I, you know, noticed immediately on coming to the city as not only being part of the buildings, uh, both the facades and the and the interiors of many buildings, but also sort of coming up through the streets on streets that are starting to wear down. Um, and then sort of ubiquitously within piles. So there's like giant sort of cairns of, um, of bricks from buildings that have been torn down, right? Um, so you see this brick in these various sort of stages and sometimes even in, uh, in construction, right? Buildings that are actually being built. Uh, from brick so it's this object that you see throughout Detroit within these various different stages of um, of its life right Um, yet it's also something when you look into Detroit's history is often mentioned within um, articles where there's some sort of event uh, a riot perhaps or a moment of violence where um, somebody will say something like uh, the brick was thrown and the riot was on and that will be like sort of the headline of the of the article so it's this thing that is both uh, a kind of record of of change and and shifting within the city but it's also an object which in some ways uh, starts um, a significant change or a significant shift so there's that. And then um, the show at Wasserman, which is pretty much in development right now, I mean, I think it's pretty early on, is a show that in some ways is touching off of um, some themes that were present within a different piece that I did in Troy, New York at the Experimental uh, Media and Performing Arts Center. It's called MPAC oftentimes, um, that's the acronym which um, was a piece called Obsolescere, The Thing is Falling, where I did this sort of theatrical piece where there were all these different objects within the show that were talking about their own sort of potential for obsolescence or their actual sort of moment of obsolescence. And the objects were kind of spanned in many ways, different things that were part of my life. Um, So there was like uh, corn 
uh, stocks that were growing in the space that were sort of dealing with uh, genetically modified food, for example, and how um, you know food can sort of change from something that is uh, sustaining and nurturing. So definition changes from that to something that may be potentially harmful, like um, cancer producing. Um, there was other things like um, a vinyl record and record player, uh, an object that is sort of had had been sort of undergoing a moment of potential obsolescence, but then it's kind of rebounded um, in the last couple of years, right? Uh, and then there was a car um, and a bunch of other objects too, some fluorescent light bulbs, these T12 fluorescent light bulbs, um, uh, a sculptural bust of myself, actually, that was like a rusted steel object, but a sculptural bust made out of cast iron. Um, what else? Uh, Encyclopedia Botanica is a huge pile of those. Um, and a goldfish, because I wanted something sort of live that was also um, a kind of um, an animal that may also be shifting due to both its relationship with us and our effect on the world, blah, blah, blah. But so there was a Ford Taurus in the show, um, and it was very much uh, the, the the speech that the Taurus gave. All, all these objects were voiced by actors uh, and sort of spoke <clears throat> at different times throughout this sort of theatrical production. Was about um, these ideas. It was actually taken from a commercial uh, Ford commercial sections of it, um, talking about how when this Ford Taurus was first. Uh, produced, it was seen as this extremely sort of futuristic car, um, this thing that was re really taking us into the future. But now we're at a point with cars that were, um, were very much in the same way as corn, thinking that these things are obviously contributing to sort of climate change as well as sort of uh, shifting or, you know, Detroit is a very good example of a city that has uh, had shifted so much due to uh, the automobile. Uh, that has been able to create sprawl and an expanse and sort of stretch the city out from being sort of like a close-knit space, right? Anyway, so the um, piece at Wasserman will actually be a dialogue between two different cars that are talking with each other about um, sort of they're both broken-down cars that uh, have um, are no longer be able to be used, but are still sort of existing as objects um, in, in the world, maybe in a junkyard. Um, and they'll be speaking to each other in many ways about sort of the condition of, um, of things that no longer work in the sense of sort of obsolescence, um, but also about the city itself, Detroit, and how it's shifted um, through its ex experience or uh, through the, the automobile industry and how that sort of changed the city throughout the years. Um, and maybe in some ways sort of looking towards the future and, um, and where it might be going. Um, so the sort of kind of general sort of meandering conversation between these two kind of old broken down vehicles. And again, that piece is gonna be voiced, um, I think by actors. We may do the, a performance of it, the opening night where it's actually live. Um, and then the rest of the time will be done with just two actors. I think meandering into the future is a good way to stop. Yeah. So as we go, we shall meander into the future. Uh, and I'll see you at work tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Take it easy, man. That was fun. Bye.
that's it. That was my interview with Anthony. If you want to learn more about his work, check it out at anthonymarcellini.info. And until next time, this has been Useless and Hard. I hope you enjoyed the show.